since I'm not going to be here next week, I'm going to do my Cornerstone family convictions early. So I wanted to offer you a few things from my house to your house. Um, As a father and as a husband, just some convictions that are mine about parenting. We have two children, uh, 133, and my grandson will be dedicated today up in Santa Clarita. So if you see me crossing the street early, it's because I'm hustling up north to be a witness to a dedication service for my grandson. Um, But we have a daughter, 33, and a son, 25. Um, No parent manages to go through parenting and life, and no husband and wife manage to go through married life without their share of challenges. And this is not meant to say we did it perfect. This is actually meant to say this is what seemed to be valuable and helpful to us and some of the lessons we have learned at our house. I say to my seminary students, your first ministry is at home. You fail at home, you fail. It doesn't matter how big your church is, how many books you write, how many people download your whatever's. Home is the most important ministry you will be given by God. And uh, so pay attention to it. Here's a couple of things that I would pass on to you that I believe were helpful in my home, and I want to emphasize them with you. I used to say to my children, there are two key priorities that I cannot fail at as your father. Priority number one is to teach you that you are loved unconditionally. That there will be no doubt in your mind that the reason you have value and worth is not because of some performance, how you behave. It'll be easier for me to show you love when you behave well. But my duty and desire is to communicate a kind of love that is not rooted on your performance, but in who you are as my child. One of the great and valuable lessons as a parent you can pass on to your child is you are loved unconditionally. Because that's how God loves, unconditionally. And modeling the father for your children is crucial to their understanding of who God is. You recognize that a father is the first representative of God for a child. And loving a child as best you can unconditionally will teach that child by way of practical relational experience that God loves me, whether I perform or I don't. Secondly, if you're a husband, same category, loving, teaching your children about the love of God, unconditional, the love of the Father. If you're a husband, love your wife, love their mother. Jesus Christ, God, the Son, loves the church. Love their mother, Ephesians 5, like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Model for your family the kind of love that God has for them because you display the love Christ has for his bride, the church, of which you are a part and you want them to be a part. That is to say, you love their mother sacrificially. You will injure your child's ability 
to want anything to do with God, let alone be engaged in a relationship that brings glory to God at home if you as a husband do not love their mother. Number two, big idea number one, I must teach you to love unconditionally and to love sacrificially, that God loves you that way, by loving those children that way and by loving their mother that way. Number two big idea is you must learn to submit to authority. God is sovereign and he is God. All authority, Jesus said, in heaven and earth is given to me. I do no child any good. I do no benefit to them. If I do not teach them, they must submit to authority. They'll be no good to God. They'll be no good to their employer. They'll be no good to anyone if they do not learn to submit to authority. Submission means you obey with a good attitude, which means for my children, I want both of your eyes. If we're doing business and discipline, this is an important conviction. Discipline comes from the Greek word instruction. Discipline is not designed to be punitive. It may be painful, but its purpose is instruction. And part of what you do when you parent is you are endeavoring to instruct your children, even if it includes Hebrews 12, painful discipline, the necessity of obeying and to do so with a good attitude because I want to because I understand I need to. Unconditional love, and you must submit to authority. And I would say to my children, in every encounter like that, this is my commitment to you. And I'd rehearse it. I'd tell them over and over, and I will not fail at this. If I fail at this, I fail. And I am not going to fail. So I want both of your eyes, and what I mean by that is when you're disciplining, children tend to look everywhere but where they need to look. The eye is the gate to the hearts, why the eye needs to be clear, Matthew 6. You want their eyes. Transactions occur in the eyes. Now, one of the reasons children don't keep eye contact is because of the fire in your eyes. Never discipline out of anger. This is James chapter 1, verse 20. Anger does not work the righteousness of God. Frustration and anger is not constructive, it is destructive. To be angry is to destroy. Never discipline out of anger, because anger can't instruct, it damages And as a parent, you know, just like I do, if you've told a child multiple times not to do that and they do it anyway, or they break the thing that you thought was valuable, it is hard not to engage in a spirit of frustration or anger. And anger is displayed in your eyes and in your countenance, the tone of your words. Listen, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Proverbs 25. You don't have to get loud to accomplish the work of communicating what you need to communicate. 
Never discipline out of anger. It is destructive, not constructive. That is not to say that you can't do discipline that feels painful. The rod is a tool to inflict a kind of consequence that says, I don't think I want to be doing this again. Yours truly regularly met the rod. And it wasn't because parents didn't love, it's because yours truly apparently had a slow learning progress. Never discipline out of anger. And let me just say a practical word. If you can't discipline constructively, wait or tag team with the teammate in your home, your wife or your husband, who's not exercised at the levels you are. So that the job gets done, but it gets done in a healthy way, not a hurtful way. Another conviction, don't discipline when it's murky. What do I mean by that? Make sure it's black and white, it's clear. Your instruction is clear. It's clear that they didn't meet the mark. It's clear to them. It's clear to you. Pick those times to discipline. What's hard for children is when they get confused. It's instruction. If they don't get it, they don't get it. But if it's clear, capitalize. And if it's not clear, wait. Pray about it and say, Lord, I need one of those moments where I can get done what you need me to get done in the life of my child. It'll happen. Black and white, make it clear so that they understand. And when you enter into the discipline encounter, finish what you start. What do I mean by that? Soft eyes. In my family, the way it was, I want both of your eyes. Number two... I want to hear yes, Dad. And I want to hear it in a tone that gives me the confidence that you are submitting to what I'm asking. And if that did not occur, that encounter did not conclude until it did. So finish what you start, because until you get to submission, you haven't gotten home. And if you take a child and leave them in the middle of frustration and just isolate them, The probability that they'll get soft and submissive is not a probable or high one. So finish what you start. So if you've got to enter into it, that's why sometimes it's hard to do anything out in public, especially with the culture. Oh, my goodness, somebody will think you're an abusive parent. You never need to be loud, but you need to finish what you start. And what I mean by that is... Help them get to the place you're wanting them to go, which is submission to the authority that God has granted you as the leader in their life. Father, you're the chief disciplinarian, not the mother. She does it because she has to do it, but make sure your children know that if she has to do it, that is not a good outcome for them. You are coming home. And again, not harsh, but certain and necessary instruction through the leadership of the Father. So those are some convictions that I would offer to you because I will not be here to do that next week, and I do want to pass on for whatever benefit it might be to you. Hebrews 12, the discipline feels painful for a little while, but at the end it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's the end game.
never out of anger, and never without love. Firm, gracious, humble. You have failed. Discipline out of the recognition that you have fumbled the ball too. And if you got what you deserved, and if I got what I deserve from my authority, it would be a difficult day. So render your discipline out of the grace and goodness and mercy that you've received. And that doesn't mean you don't apply the influence where it needs to be applied, but do it out of love. If you do not lead out of love, whatever you do, listen to this, damages. And it misrepresents Christianity. And no discipline should happen outside of the context of relationship. The most common reality in our culture today is third-generation Christians walking away. Third-generation children, rather. Mom or dad gets saved. Everybody sees the transaction. Dad used to be X. He's now Y. What did that? The gospel of God. Children witness that, validating the fruit of the gospel. Generation that witnessed that, the second generation, has validating evidence that God is who he says he is and can do what God says he can do. Grandchildren who do not witness that transaction because they have parents, they're growing up in Christian homes, I'm going to call it Christian culture, don't see the dramatic transformation that only God can do. There are a lot of religious people. Mormons can live the kind of life that many Christians live. On the outside, that is not transformational or compelling. What's compelling and transformational, and this is my point, is when your children see God do what only God can do. And the way they witness that the most is answered prayer. You with them seeking the Lord on behalf of things that you can't affect, but God can affect. And recognizing that when you ask and when he works, there is a real-time evidence of a God who lives, a God who does what he says he can do, fulfills his promises, and it's real. And it's validated as real. In addition to the inspired words of the Scripture, there is the undeniable evidence in real time of what God can do when we ask him. So answered prayer, pray with your family, pray together, record what God does, and memorialize it. It'll help them believe what they need to believe. What is the most dangerous thing, and I'm transitioning, what is the most dangerous thing you can do as a parent? What is the most dangerous thing a church can do? I want to argue that it's not only to fail to model who God is, it's a failure to communicate what the gospel is. To mislead children or your family regarding how to be reconciled to God, how to go to heaven, how to have a relationship with God. 
what the true gospel is and what it is not. Would it not be that to give your children a misrepresentation of the gospel that saves or the faith that saves, would that not be the greatest failure of all? Well, of course it would, because it has the greatest implications. It has eternal repercussions. How does a person receive eternal life? Here at Grace, we do a number of, if you're an elder, you do a number of membership applications. And on that membership application, if you've done that, on the back it says, how do you share the gospel from the Bible? In other words, show me how you would help someone from the authoritative word of God understand the gospel of God that saves. Because churches are not doing a good job of that, and therefore families are not doing a good job of that. The gospel has been diluted into something that's either easy to believe or as some therapeutic measure that I need to get God in my life because my life isn't working, and I do want my best life now. So there's this distortion of what the gospel is. And then you have religious spirituality, mysticism, and the truth according to me, and the experiential religion. Hey, at church, I'm supposed to feel something. I want to encounter God, and I'm on some kind of spiritual mystical journey, and if I don't feel it, if he doesn't display something that causes me to tingle and my emotions to elevate, that can't be what I'm looking for, and it can't be the truth that I desire. How does a person receive eternal life? The Jews say that, the Jewish religion would say that I'm not inherently sinful. I can make choices. And if I do the rules, if I obey the moral law of God, and if I make my best effort, to be righteous, and they'll say a righteous man falls down seven times and he gets up again. As long as I keep getting up and I keep trying, as long as my efforts are good before God and I regard God as God desires to be regarded, I will be found worthy or righteous. What does the Catholic say? Catholic says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. They will tell you that salvation is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Sound familiar to you? What else do they say? That that grace is merited through your work, and your, that grace is merited and applied through the seven sacraments of a Catholic. You have to be baptized as a Catholic. You have to confess as a Catholic. Last rites as a Catholic. Seven steps. You need grace, but you need to work in order to justify the grace you receive. It is grace plus your work, and it's mediated through the church. 
Catholic Church is the instrument appointed by God to mediate this grace, this righteousness. Islam says you must do the will of Allah. Jesus died for no reason, they would say, because we're inherently neutral. We're not born into sin. We make choices. Allah has revealed his will. The unpardonable sin in Islam is to say that Allah is not one. The infidels say God is three in one. You say God is three in one, you have committed the unpardonable blasphemous sin that denies you access to whatever heaven would be or the afterlife. You hope for Allah's mercy. You're never secure in it. You seek to do his will, and then you wait and hope. What does the Bible say? James chapter 2 is, and don't turn there, we're going there. Go to John 1. Because James chapter 2, and I'm going to take a couple of weeks to unpack what I want you to taste out of this section, because James 2 is the hub of the book. It's the heart of James. It's the centerpiece around which everything else revolves. It's about the faith that saves. It's about having true faith. It's about having the faith that gets you into heaven. It's about having the faith that demonstrates that you are right with God. It's about the faith that is useful. Because what we'll read in James chapter 2, he says, what use is that? A reference to faith. That kind of faith, oh foolish fellow, it's useless. Useless for what? Obtaining the benefits of faith through the gospel of God, which is reconciled with him and possessing the life that comes from him, which lasts forever, being saved. It's saving faith. And the kind of faith James is going to talk about is the faith that is useless, dead, and does not save. Before I talk about what James is saying, I want to talk about what the Bible is saying, and then I want to complement what James is saying with what the Scriptures have declared about the gospel. Real faith, saving faith, is the consequence of what? You're sitting down with your children. You're telling one of your friends, this is how you go to heaven. This is how you get reconciled with God. This is what you need to know. And this is what you need to do. What does the Bible say? John chapter 1. This is my favorite share the gospel section in the Bible, and there's a lot of good spaces to go, but I like this one. And I like it because verse 12 is what you need to do and in part what you need to believe. Verse 12, John 1, but as many as received him, capital H, that's the hymn referred to Previously, the word who will be made flesh, but as many as received him, to them he gave, God gave, the right to become children of God, a part of God's family. 
That is to those who believe in his name. That's a contemporaneous, simultaneous reality. You receive and you believe. The reason I like John 1.12, if you're talking about what the gospel is and what saving faith involves, you're going to see the word believe here. And you're going to see the word receive here. They are both important. John chapter 1 begins with a declaration of who Jesus Christ is. In the beginning was the Word. Word, logos, referring to Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. It's a reference to Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. Whenever the beginning was, He already was. He's eternal. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, which is he had personality, independent personality, and he was in close proximity. He was with God, the Father. He's eternal with God, and he is separate in personality from God the Father. He is with him. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was, he was in the beginning with God, verse 2. All things came into being by him, verse 3. Nothing came into being that has come into being without him, which is he's the creator. Verse 4, in him was life. He's the life giver. And the life was the light of men. He's the light bringer. He brings rationality and understanding. Verse 9, he is the true light, which comes into the world and enlightens every man. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Jewish people, the people of God, and those who were his own did not, here's the key thought, did not receive him. What does that mean? They rejected him. They rejected who he was. They called him a blasphemer, a deceiver, a carpenter's son, something less than he was. They did not receive him for who he was. The first 11 verses of John 1 matter because they make an undeniable declaration of who Jesus Christ is as sovereign God, creator, eternal, personal, light giver, revelation provider, They didn't receive him, but, adversative, verse 12, but as many as received him, who did what they didn't do. I like the word received. It's translated in other places, welcome, decamai. It means to open the door willingly and let him in for who he is. If you're going to receive Jesus Christ... You need to know who he is, Lord of everything, creator of everything, beginner of everything. You need to identify him and agree 
That's who he is, and you need to open the door of your heart and welcome him as he is. Not who you want him to be, but for who he is. So a knock happens at your door, you walk to the door, you look out through the side lights or through the keyhole or or the uh, eye hole, you see who it is, and you go, oh, I'll open the door, and I'll welcome them in. That's decamai. To as many as received him for who he is, and to those who believe on his name, operative word, believe, trust, rely, be convinced of. What? Believe in his name, his name being put for who he is and what he has done. He gave the right to become children of God. You want to get in God's family? You're talking to your children. It's great that you're in our family. Mom and dad are so pleased that God gave you to us. But the way you get into God's family is you recognize who he is. And you believe in what he has done. His name is Jesus. He came to save his people from their sins. You want to believe in his name? You have to believe in what his name represents and the work that he did bearing that name. That's what John starts with. And that's what's required to become a child of God. You must receive and you must believe. This is the work of God, verse 13, who were born not of blood. In other words, not a family connection, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not because dad wanted you to or because you wanted Two, first and foremost, nor of the will of man, but of God. The ability, the transaction, salvation is the work of God. Parents, if you love your children, you will ask God to do what only God can do for them, what they cannot do for themselves, and what you cannot will that be done for them. And that is that they will receive him and that they will believe in him. They will place their faith and trust in his work, not their own. And they will become children of God. Chapter 3, the book of John. Here's the question. How does a person receive eternal life? How do they go to heaven? How do they get reconciled and made right with God? What is the faith that saves? What is the useful faith? John chapter 3, you know this story. Nicodemus, rich guy, religious guy, respectful guy, a ruler, a teacher. Here's these words from Jesus, verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's not a physical birth, verse 4. It's a spiritual birth, verse 5. Jesus said, truly, truly, that is, don't miss this. This is the truth. 
This is the truth. You don't want to miss this. This is the absolute truth. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, the cleansing work of the Spirit of God by the changed heart produced by the Spirit of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7, do not marvel. Don't let this surprise you. Don't be perplexed. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In order to engage God who is spirit, you need to be born again by the spirit. You need to be changed from the inside out. Hey, how does that happen? And if it doesn't happen, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So you're with your children. You're with people you care about and love. Because the worst thing you can do is misrepresent the way to heaven, reconciliation with God, becoming a child of God, and knowing how to say it and show them how to see it is critical and cardinal for any parent and any friend and any church. How does it happen? John chapter 3. Verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, that whoever, and I'm going to highlight a word, I'm just going to drumbeat it. And I realize that for many of you, this is not new. I just want you to hear it again. It's the gospel. That whoever, verse 15, believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 5, verse 24, Jesus again, truly, truly. In other words, don't miss this. This is axiomatic. This is sovereignly true. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Operative word, he believes John 6, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Acts 13, 38 and 39, Paul at Pisidian Antioch in the synagogue, having been transformed by grace, preaching about that grace, first missionary journey. What does the Bible say about how to go to heaven? What does the Bible say about reconciliation with God? Acts 13, 38. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. What would that be? Freedom from sin and freedom from the consequences ultimately of sin, and that's death. 
He who believes is freed from all things. Turn over to Romans chapter 4. Actually, let's start with chapter 3. Verse 21. Now, if you know anything about the book of Romans, Paul has indicted everyone whether you're a Jew and religious, moral, or a pagan who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness, verse 19 of chapter 3 says, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. He has just declared that all are under sin, verse 9. There's none righteous, not a one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. I read an article by a Jewish uh, rabbi saying that God never says that people are depraved or all under sin in the Torah, in the Old Testament. Well, this quotation of Paul's in Romans chapter 3 comes out of Psalm 14. This is the condition of everyone, and everyone is accountable before God. Everyone is guilty before God. All are worthy of the consequences of sin because not a one of us is righteous. There's not a one of us who seeks God. There's not a one of us who desires to be what God made us to be. We are depraved and fallen in Adam. We have a sin nature. It's not just that we do sin or commit sins. We sin because we are what? Sinners. Everybody. So what does it take to go to heaven? It takes an understanding that I need what I can't manufacture. If my goal is to be righteous before God, and this says that I can't because I don't, I'm indicted. Verse 20, well, how do I fix that? Verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, that is, made righteous, in his sight. I can't because I don't want to, and I can't perform, I can't do enough, nor do I want to. There's none that does good, verse 12, not even one. The only thing the law comes, the law does is tutor me into the reality that I don't make what is required of me in order to be made right with God. And therefore, being able to enjoy the benefits of being in the presence of God, who is holy and righteous. Now, here's where I want you to really dial in. You recognize that, but I want you to watch 21 through 31. But now, apart from the law, the word apart means totally apart. In no way is the law involved with securing the righteousness of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That is, or even the righteousness of God, through faith. I'm going to emphasize these words again. The righteousness of God, which does not come through the law, is through faith, In whom? Jesus Christ. I can't get justified by performing. 
The only possible way I can be made right with God, and I'm not right with God, I'm indicted, and the wages of that sin is death. The only way that I can get right with God is for that righteousness to be gifted to me by faith in the one who is righteous, Jesus Christ. And it's for all those, look at verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who do what? Who believe. And there is no distinction. Red and yellow, black and white, young and old, doesn't matter where you come from, Gentile or Jew, no distinction. This righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ, all who believe. And we all need it, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The standard is too high. We fail to meet that standard, woefully fail. Verse 24, therefore, being justified as a gift. What do you pay for a gift? Nothing. It's not a gift if you pay for it. It's without cost. And it's by grace, which means... It's without cause. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption, that's the ransom price, the payment for sin, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly or displayed publicly as a propitiation. That's a satisfaction. That's an appeasement. It's a big theological word, but we don't use it. But it means to satisfy in such a way that what is due is not required and a relationship is restored. And God did this publicly as a satisfaction in His blood, Christ, watch this, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Now, I take that to mean that he did not execute fully the consequences of sin, which is eternal death. So he did not execute full justice and consequence upon those who offered a temporary propitiation. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices were, which were not fully adequate to satisfy Until the eternal propitiation, the one offered by Jesus, this is Hebrews 9, he offered a sacrifice that not only dealt quantitatively with my conscience or qualitatively with my conscience, but it lasted eternally, quantitatively forever. He passed over sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. I'm in verse 26 at the present time, a reference to Jesus, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. So you've got through faith, those who believe, justified as a gift, propitiation through his blood, in his blood through faith, the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? Of works? key words, because we're going to see it in James 2, of works, no, but by a law of faith. The truth about faith 
is the fundamental factor. Verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified, that's declared righteous, fully and completely and eternally imputed forensically, which means it happens by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? He's not the God of Gentiles. Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that's the Jew, and the uncircumcised, the non-Jew, through Jew, through what? Faith. This is one God applying the same law, the law of faith. That's how you get made righteous with God. And then he goes on to say in this last statement, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. Now listen, what does the Bible say about saving faith? It is absolutely essential that you believe. That you receive who Jesus Christ is and you believe Receive him for who he is, and you believe, you trust, you rely on, you place your confidence in his work, not your work. Not your merits through the law. Not your performance as a good citizen at Grace Church. Not because you do adventure clubs and Awana and camp and check the boxes. This is my biggest fear as the campus pastor at the Master's University, that students will believe that Christianity is a culture of things you do, or it's a culture of things you don't do. No, Christianity is the life you receive when you recognize you can't do anything to merit the righteousness and grace and forgiveness of God. But God in His Son, out of love for us, has done everything. He has paid it all. When Jesus said it is finished, it's paid in full. The satisfaction for my debt, the propitiation, He offered. What God desired and required was provided through His ransom, through His work, through His blood sacrifice, through His atoning death, He died so I didn't have to. He suffered what I couldn't pay. And that's true because hell doesn't satisfy no matter how much you suffer. But when He said it is finished after His suffering, it satisfied, it completed It propitiated. What was broken was reconciled. A justice that was required, he provided. And I access that. Your children access that, not through performing, but by believing. By receiving Jesus Christ for who he is, God, very God, the son who came to sacrifice the Lamb of God, who bore their sin and endured what they justly owed. If you discipline your children, they understand cause and effect. Sin brings consequences. Disobedience brings consequences. The consequences I deserve, He paid. And He offers to me as a gift by faith, not of works. Ephesians 2 lest anyone should boast. 
That's how the Bible says you go to heaven and you're reconciled with God by this believing, not working. Can you say amen to that? Now, James chapter 2, <laughs> Martin Luther called a right strawy epistle because in his view, the section that we're going to read, and I will talk about the next time we're together, <laughs> is the flip side of the coin. It's not James and Paul fighting against each other, because that's what he said. James contradicts Paul. No, James is talking from the other side of the coin. They're fighting back to back. Paul is dealing with legalism and works salvation coming out of the Jewish culture. James is dealing with the kind of faith professing that has no works. Easy believism is what we would call it. Oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. James wants to get at the real faith that really saves. Because faith saves. But genuine faith works. Faith that saves is faith alone that saves. And the faith that saves John Calvin is never alone. Never alone. I'm going to read this. I'm going to plant my flag and trust that you will return because I don't think you can appreciate James 2, 14 through 26 unless you appreciate what the true gospel is and the potential conflict. The gospel involves faith alone. Verse 14, chapter 2, James, the heart of the book, the heart of the matter. What use is it? What value, my brethren? If a man says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Answer, nope. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, watch this, what use is that? You know, because faith, listen to this, I'll give you the one point ahead of time. Faith is more than words. Faith is all more than words, or it's not real faith. Real faith is more than words, because just saying it and not doing it has no value. Verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is what? Dead. It's not living or life-giving. Verse 18, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Are you willing to recognize... This is my favorite verse in this whole section. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, what faith, that faith rather, without works is what? Useless. It's foolish people to think that saying it makes it. 
a reality. It's more than words and it's more than conviction because he referenced the demons who believe and shudder. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So your faith is proven and perfected when work is manifest. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's how faith works. He was called the friend of God by faith. But you see that A man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's where Martin Luther had the challenge. Verse 25, and in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. How do you get to heaven? With faith. By believing. What kind of faith saves? The point of this section is to help you understand that saying it doesn't equal it. And having convictions about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done doesn't equal it. And we'll talk about that the next time that we get together. Hey, happy Mother's Day. Be what God wants you to be at your house. And if things are out of order at your house, be a Christian and go, you know what? Not what we want to be. Let's change today. One of the beauties of Christianity is you can confess and repent and change. Can you say amen to that? So whatever the bad track record was, go, you know what? This is 2021. This is Mother's Day. And we're going to change today for the better. Father, thank you for the time we've shared today. This is rehearsal for many regarding the substance of the gospel that saves. But Lord, my prayer is that parents here will be cautious about saying it in a way that potentially will misrepresent it. And I pray that the combination of the words of Jesus and the words of Paul and the words of the New Testament and the words of James will be synchronized in such a pithy, powerful way that it'll provoke conviction and transformation. That the kind of culture we have in our house is gospel culture, not just Christian church culture. Lord, I commit these families to you I pray for moms and dads and leaders of households that they will model who God is and that they will proclaim the message of God that saves. Make us what we ought to be, and we thank you for Jesus in whose name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.